0: So welcome to The Atlantic Interview. Uh, this is the special all-Goldberg edition of The Atlantic Interview. My guest today is Jonah Goldberg. Jonah, tell us who you are. I mean, I know who you are.
1: <laughs> I am a senior editor of National Review where I've been for almost 20 years. I'm a fellow at the American Enterprise When did you move Europe. from junior to senior? Um, I was for a long time what they called an editor-at-large. Right? I was the founding editor. It also Earth. sounds like you're a wild animal. Yeah, yeah. a little bit. Yeah, He's at-large. For me, what was great about it, the job description was I I was allowed to give whatever advice I wanted on hiring and firing and changing things and running these kinds of articles, those kinds of articles but I had zero accountability for having yeah. any of it actually happen.
0: Editors are at large are neither editors nor at large.
1: Right? There you go. Yeah.
0: Right. But I was so that's bu- your main job. Your main job is at National Review.
1: State. Uh, well, I mean, I, I, I'm basically in the Jonah Goldberg business, right? So I'm a syndicated columnist. I'm a columnist for the LA Times. You got the G-File. I got this thing called the G-File, which is this weird newsletter thing. I just started a podcast called The Remnant. No
0: more podcasts, please. Yeah, I, I think mine's the
1: last one. No, I think we have enough.
0: Yeah, I, yeah. I agree. I agree. And, uh... You're on uh, the place. This is. Uh, oh, and, and I'm a Fox News contributor. Yeah. Well, I was going to say this because yeah. because people have to understand how strange the swamp is. The swamp is is a place where, uh, and I'm using that sardonically. Uh-huh. Please, no no emails. Uh, the swamp is a place where uh, you can become friends with someone. Only through being on TV together um, and being in green rooms, the place where they they hold you in a a pen, where they keep all the editors at large um, until they move them into the studio.
1: And we're here with more from Jeffrey Goldberg of The Atlantic, who has the cover in this month's magazine on the Obama documentary. And Jonah Goldberg is senior editor at The National Review. David, I want to start with you. And so you get to
0: know people fairly well, but you don't actually know them at all. So there's a right. whole sort of archipelago of green rooms uh, around Washington. That's mostly where I know you from. And there's also, I
1: mean, it should be a good piece for someone to do, maybe someone for the Atlantic, on the sociology of green Stop rooms. Stop assigning pieces <laughs> in the Atlantic. Because uh, this very dynamic, sort of like the White House Correspondents' Dinner, I used to dislike a lot about Washington because yeah. there was the sense, particularly like green rooms for like the old crossfire, cultivated this sense that it's all shtick, you know, right. We're all waiting behind the curtain, and then when we get on, it's it's like pro-wrestling. We're going to get there, we're going to yell right. at each other, but we don't really mean it.
0: And Right. See you at the Sidwell silent auction.
1: Yeah, exactly. Of, yeah, right. Yeah, and there's yeah. something about that, and I think that's one of, like...
0: Like, the audience should know that all these people live within the 10-block radius of each other, right. and their kids do go to school together. I think this is fading, certainly in the Trump era, when the people they're bringing in, the networks are bringing in to speak on behalf of... Trump are actually truly outsiders because right. the one thing that most conservatives and most liberals who live in Washington share is a distaste for Trump. Let's talk about your life as a, a homeless conservative. Uh-huh. And I'm not suggesting that you're literally homeless, but trace the arc of this, if you will, from the moment you realized, wait a second, um, these these folks who say that they are conservatives uh, are not actually conservatives, and then talk about the first time it became uncomfortable for you.
1: <laughs> I, I want to just sort of correct the formulation a little bit. I know exactly yes. what you mean. I am not ideologically homeless. My problem is I'm politically homeless. Right. Right? And I'm a national And you Review have a home with the National Review. And with the American Enterprise Institute. I'm comfortable in my own skin ideologically. Politically, it's another matter, right? Um, what we've seen in the last couple of years is uh, the Republican Party... Uh, get either dragged along or a leap ahead into essentially a cult of personality and right. um, for some and cult of personality is somewhat misleading because it's only for a handful of people do they really think that Donald Trump is going to you know that comrade Trump will deliver the greatest wheat harvest the olds have ever seen right um, For most of them it's more like um, and I don't I don't mean to be glib about this you know my, my brother was an addict he died a few years ago um, and I watched how my parents would try to rationalize, his behavior, right? And and every time my brother had a good day, it was the first day of the rest of his life. And my dad was making plans to get a job. This is the jobs. day
0: he became president.
1: Yeah. And so, and this is, this is the thing with Trump. It's constantly, this is the day he became president. This is the pivot. This, he's off to the right foot. He can change. People become invested. In so there's
0: two camps. There's a camp of actual true believers. Right. And then there's a larger camp to say, no, it's not as bad as you think.
1: I mean, so it's funny. I was just Because like a year ago, year and a half ago, at Fox and at other places on the right, you would, I I remember being so unbelievably disheartened by how many pundits, commentators, not just at Fox, but in talk radio all over the place, lied. You know, they would say, Trump is fantastic. Trump is awesome. Um, Trump is a genius. He's a businessman, all this kind of stuff. And then the camera goes off or the microphone goes off. And then they would all of a sudden say, I can't believe I have to defend this guy, um, that's
0: that's terrible.
1: It's horrible. By the way, that's the swamp. That is the swamp. It's totally the swamp. I mean there it's total projection when they call
0: when they call this place Washington the swamp and then behave in the duplicitous way.
1: Mm-hmm. What are they what are we talking about here? And what I found though is that a year later you now find people who aren't lying that originally they got into it because oh Trump will fade or he'll be useful to get Cruz elected, or the base likes him, the consumer likes him, the audience likes him, so I have to say nice things about him, um, even if I don't believe them to be true. And now you don't find a lot of people, you know, saying when the camera goes off, I can't believe I have to defend this guy, because they've internalized...
0: Oh, that's interesting. They believe their own bullshit. Which is interesting, because there's more proof, in my opinion, that he's not... That's well, right. I mean, that, that, it's an interesting phenomenon. The Republican Party that you thought you belonged to, or, 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 or it wasn't the Republican Party because Donald Trump is not actually a Republican. Right. It's a pop, I mean, the base turns out to be populist and racist, mm-hmm. much of it. I mean, we could probably argue about the, the levels there. Yeah. But did you wake up, I mean, did it happen in a flash where you said, wait a second, who are these people I've, I've, I've traveled through my adulthood with?
1: Yeah, no. I mean, so I wrote over a year and a half ago comparing the slow takeover of the right by the Trumpists as, a, um, as akin to the invasion of the body snatchers. Right, I
0: remember right? that piece. You know,
1: and all of a sudden you see a close friend of yours talking about, you know, Comrade Trump, and you're like, oh my gosh, you, they got you, right? Right, and, uh, right? And it happened one by one with lots of people, lots of friends of mine. I've, Have you lost these friends? I've lost some friends, for sure. And I've, I've lost a lot of fans. On the right, Trump is still sort of controversial. Just talking about him is divisive, right? right. Uh, because there's some people we're all in and there's some people who are against him. And uh, if you get asked the question and you take a strong stand against him and you don't speak in these silly euphemisms like maybe he should tweet less, you piss people off. And so like a well, lot of-
0: Why do you say that? Because it is interesting because his tweeting does cause a disproportionate amount of the destabilization that we were experiencing. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, are you saying that- saying, telling him not to tweet is akin to putting bacitracin on a, on, a, on a tumor? Or, or, I mean, because it seems like the, it's, a, it's a stand-in for a whole set of impulsive behaviors that, if they did not exist, might bring us to a saner place. Yeah, but, you know, my, my
1: position for a long time has been that the, the, the tweeting is a symptom, right? I right. mean, like uh, people, you know, Barack Obama tweeted, you know, people tweet. <laughs> I mean, it's not... No Bra- one
0: would confuse their two Twitter feeds. No,
1: and the problem with with Trump's Twitter feed is that it is it's like the Narnian wardrobe on his lizard brain, right? And it just vomits out whatever his raging sphincterless id is got going at the given moment, and it gets him into an enormous amount of trouble. And I could talk on Blue in the face about the various forms of right-wing wagon circling that, that sure. go on with Trump. And you know, one of the biggest ones is anti-anti-Trumpism, right? Which right. is that uh we should focus more on the hypocrisy of the New York Times. This is Tucker Carlson. It's a big, it's a big thing at Fox generally. It's on, on the opinion shows. Right. You
0: know, it's, it's why they're still talking about Hillary's emails, even though Hillary lost the race for president.
1: Yeah, it's a lot of it's media criticism as a substitute. Because if you can't defend Trump on the merits, all you can do is attack the critics, right? And so if Barack Obama did something lawless, which I think he did quite often um, in terms of executive orders and whatnot and you went ballistic as a conservative about it, if then Donald Trump does it, it's fine to say the New York Times is hypocritical for going ballistic when Donald Trump does it and supporting it when Barack Obama does it. It's good and useful to point out the hypocrisy. But you also have to acknowledge that you were against it when Obama did it, so you have to be against it when Trump does it too, or at least explain why you're not. Let me ask you how
0: a person who is dispositionally non-conservative, ideologically, not really anything, completely transactional, has no higher thoughts about America and its role in the world, and, and has no ideological thoughts per se. Mm-hmm. How did he so easily take over an entire party?
1: So there are a thousand different variables. Uh, uh, very quickly, one was just simply the, the, the structural sort of game theory nature of a 16, 17-person race, right? right. Um, which was a huge problem. I personally think in terms of important long-term trends... There was a certain psychic break that occurred with the tea parties. The general thrust to the tea parties was, a, was exactly the kind of response that I would want from Americans, of sort of back to basics, back to the Constitution, limited government, living within our means, all that kind of stuff. And they, they were,
0: absolutely stood for something.
1: And they were wholesale, written off as racists and bigots. Right. And people overlooked the fact that many of the leaders of the Tea Party, their, their preferred candidates, were African-Americans, Herman Cain, Ben Carson, that was a tell, that was these guys saying, we don't like being called racists. Um, A lot of people, including some serious intellectuals, said, well, that project doesn't work. We're heading towards Caesarism, we're heading towards tribalism, so we might as well develop our own kind of tribalism. Two other factors are hugely important. One is Trump broke the blood-brain barrier of, of entertainment and politics in a way that I think, will ultimately be bad news for Democrats. We
0: needed 15 years of reality TV to bring about this. Yeah. We needed to become inured to the values of reality TV.
1: That's right. I think there was, and also, you know, Hollywood thought, a lot of Hollywood liberals were encroaching on politics for a very, very, very long time, lowering, chipping away at this barrier. And it's just ironic that it took Donald Trump to, was the first one over (laughs) the fence. And this is why I think in the long term, um, this is sort of bad news for for Democrat, for the left, because the Republican celebrities, our bench is mighty thin, right? I mean, Kid Rock, Scott Bayo Meanwhile, I think in, in in the summer of 2016, if Oprah, George Clooney, Tom Hanks, if they jumped in, they probably could have. Well, Oprah very well might. She you might, know, and, uh, I, and that's my point, is yeah. that you guys have a much, much, much deeper Watch bench. Watch the you
0: guys thing. I'm above it all. I'm, I'm not appreciate. the Goldberg you think I am. <laughs> um,
1: One last point, which I think is hugely important, and it's lost on both big chunks of the right and of the left. People did not like Hillary Clinton. They just didn't like her. And whatever you thought of Bill Clinton, Lord knows I wasn't a fan, um, everyone could recognize his political skills. I mean, that guy, you could pull him off an intern, slap him with a flounder, and say, give me 45 minutes on intellectual property rights in the third world, and he could just go, right? Hillary Clinton's idea of extemporaneous speaking was leaping from her, her prepared remarks to prepared note cards. She was just, she's a lady who would say there's no eating in the library. She was also seen as much more left-wing than her husband, had a, fair or not, right? And Not fair, by the way. Yeah, but, that's fine. Yeah. yeah, but just what Trump doesn't understand, what Steve Bannon doesn't understand with his th- thumbless grasp of American politics, is that Donald Trump's... Mandate or uh, two unifying mandates. Conservatives on the court, which is why he's been so good on that, uh, but from a conservative perspective. And the other one was, don't be Hillary Clinton, and he accomplished that on day one. And that's but and, and so some part of his brain understands that, which is why he. I mean, I I don't know what day this will be posted, but I guarantee you, in the last forty-eight hours, Donald <laughs> Trump has tweeted something about Hillary Clinton, right? Fox has, you know, Sean Hannity has done some raging scandal about Hillary Clinton because psychologically one of the things these guys have to do to justify their support for Trump is to remind people constantly you could have had Hillary. Do you honestly believe that Hillary would be tougher on Putin than me? Hillary was going to cut the budget substantially the military. Hillary resisted and you know what happened? You lost the election in a landslide. And you hear echoes of this all over the place. I was on a National Review cruise. You know, I work for a cruise company that puts out a right-wing magazine on the side. Right. And um, this was three months after the election, something like that. And this person was asked, how's Trump doing? And they said, well, I judge it entirely by how much better this is than what Hillary would have done. And you hear this all over the place on the right. And... To me, this is a profoundly screwed up way of thinking about things. I don't know that any other Republican or Democratic president, I don't think we ever said, well, six months, a year into their presidency, well, you know, yeah, Bush is making some mistakes, but at least he's not John Kerry. Right. If better than your a partisan opponent is now the standard by which you judge incumbents, then conser- movement conservatism and movement progressivism or right. whatever you want to go, That's not an idea. They're meaningless, right. right? I mean, that's just, so you're one click better than the person that you thought would have ruined the country? Well, wow, that's, that's, that's great. Right. That's not American greatness.
0: We're going to pause now and thank our sponsor. Jonah Goldberg and I will play a game called, Who is your favorite Goldberg when we come back? racism in the party, my view is that you either have to be a racist to vote for Donald Trump or someone who's willing to overlook racism and misogyny and, and discount these things. Am I wrong in and, 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 and thinking that a process that began in 1968, uh, a Southern strategy, this is the culmination in a way of a, of a, of a core group of voters who are at least insensitive to, um, to a level of dog whistling that I certainly hear.
1: A lot of the trends that gave us Trump um, have more to do with broader trends in the culture than um, stuff on, necessarily stuff on the right. First of all, the, the degree to which large swaths of the country can tune out the identity politics Stuff right, even when the anti politics stuff is correct about civil rights and all that kind of stuff, um, that has a lot to do with um, the demonization, sort of like the demonization of tea parties I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Right, so Mitt Romney was called a racist monster because of a speech about Obamacare that he gave to the NAACP. He was called, he was mocked mercilessly for his binders full of women comment, which was him admitting that he did exactly what women's groups want politicians to do, which is reach out, ask for nom- suggestions to staff as government so it would be more diverse and more gender balanced. And yeah, binders for all the women. Right, right.
0: His klutziness was mistaken for some kind of, uh, I, I agree with you yeah, on that, so, uh, for so misogyny. Or so something. conservatives,
1: yeah. well-meaning conservatives, go back and look what the same people today are, are, you know, who are celebrating John McCain as this hero, what they said about him in 2008. Um, conservatives have been,
0: demonized. but aren't you doing a little bit right now? What you're saying that I mean that 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 oh yeah, Trump voters who did this are bad. But look what the no look, no no the, no that's not
1: my point at all. I, I, my point is is that um, it's liberals not a, created this. It's Phenomenal. not a whataboutism thing. It is it explains why um, tuning out the criticism of Trump um, was possible. You uh, do not
0: clearly believe that race is the motivating underlying factor in all of this. That this is not. That the election of Donald Trump was not a white reaction to a radically changing America, or the perception that America is radically changing, as uh, exemplified or personified by this black guy with a strange name.
1: Well, there's some of that to be sure, right? Um, and I, that's sort of really where I was getting to about the psychic break that happened with the Tea Parties. Is you had a lot of people who said, "Look, we're going to be called racist no matter what. Um, we're gonna, so why not just give in to our tribalism?" Uh, you know who Robert Putnam is, right? Mm-hmm. So Robert Putnam... I'm going bowling with him later. <laughs> um, that's very good egghead humor. Robert Putnam did this massive longitudinal survey about, about the role of immigration plays in society. He hated his findings. Turns out, so he delayed a year trying to disprove them <laughs> and couldn't. And because he's an honest social scientist, he published it. And then he found that immigration um, is deeply corrosive, at least in the short and medium term, to civil society. Um, and it's not because of racism. You know, everyone wants to say it's xenophobia. Everyone wants to right. say it's bigotry. It's because shared cultural norms are transmitted through language, through traditions, through customs. And when you introduce large numbers of new people into a society, into a community, people have, as he puts it, a tendency to hunker down, to pull into their shells. Right. right? And I personally think that we get Trump is because... Civil society in this country is in really rotten shape, and uh, the institutions, the mediating institutions that traditionally give us meaning and a sense of belonging are being eroded, and so instead people are looking to Washington to provide meaning. You read Obama's second inaugural. He gets deep into this. He basically describes a country where it's the federal government and the individual with nothing in the middle, and, um, and so added into this is this problem of the changing role of media where because we've become more atomized and we don't live in diverse communities and have a rich civil society, we retreat to virtual communities. And they tend to reinforce this tribalism where you basically just like hangs out with like. And we tend to watch politics as basically this um, reality television show. And so, yeah, the race stuff played a, definitely played a role in it. The failure to do anything on immigration played an enormous role in it. People A lot of people out in the country just simply feel like they are the butt of everyone's jokes, that they are considered to be the source of all evil in this country, and um, that coastal elites look down on them. And then here comes this guy who appealed to their sense of uh, resentment and appealed to their sense of betrayal by elites, um, who are living with the consequences of policies that come from Washington, Um, that elites like us and people who live in Washington don't have to deal with, I guarantee you most of the immigrants that you know are either incredibly hardworking manual laborers who work on the lawns around here or clean up after people um, and have great work ethics and are impressive people, or they're hyper-educated, really impressive people with PhDs and graduate degrees. There are lots of people out in the rest of the country who... have to experience much more of the social and and cultural chaos that comes with mass migration. They felt betrayed by both the sort of priesthoods of true conservatism, the talk radio people, who over-promised and underdelivered, delivered and they felt betrayed by the Washington GOP establishment who over-promised and underdelivered. And so they looked at Trump, and when you say, well, you have to overlook this stuff, yeah, you do have to overlook a bunch of racist, nasty crap that Trump said, but... Th- They've completely tuned out elites who say this makes him unacceptable. They figured, well, if he's willing to say this crazy stuff, that at least that signals to me that he's not a typical politician. And so we hear what we hear is, because we're in the word business, is we're looking for pattern recognition that we can make sense of Trump about. Other people hear, well, he's willing to say this stuff. I don't necessarily agree with it. But at least I know he's not going to kowtow to the respectable crowd and the establishment crowd. And so I don't think you have to think that everybody who heard this stuff, the dog whistle might have been sending a different message than the one that you heard legitimately on the mail mm-hmm.
0: uh, Which party is going to disintegrate first, the Democratic Party or the Republican Party?
1: I think probably the Republican Party. All of the problems that we've been sort of Talking about or alluding to that gave us Trump and all the rest, they're all made worse the more dysfunction that we have, right? If serious people don't think seriously about immigration and deal with people's legitimate frustrations with it, then unserious and irresponsible people will step in and take up the issue. I think Trump definitely proves that. The dysfunction in Washington, the failure to get anything done, gives much, much more power to. Steve Bannon than his actual arguments do uh, because if Washington's not getting anything done anyway, why not treat it like a circus? Why not, you know, send some friggin' racist clown like Roy Moore in there because at least that's entertaining. So, so the Republicans are spiraling down faster. They're spiraling down faster, but I don't think you can discount the fact that um, a huge part of the reason for the Democratic Party and the Republican Party's existence is to be not be the other party. And you take away the Republican Party, you can get this catalytic effect where they can overtake each other in their dysfunction. What replaces
0: the Republican Party if it disintegrates? Um,
1: I, I, th- I think we could be a heading... A populist party? Maybe. I think we could be heading into some 1948-style election where you have a four-way race, right? You know, game theory says that the the, the more entrants... Go back to the Republican primaries. The right. more entrants you have, the less you need to be the winner. Sure. And... um I'm not a huge fan of Bloomberg, but he's a smart grown-up. And some of that message of, you know, maybe just a return to normalcy after four years of sort of Trumpian chaos uh, might appeal to a lot of people. And the more people, the more entrance you have, the more you can see a Mark Cuban getting in. You can see all sorts of independent kind of runs. Um, But let me put it this way. If the Republican Party goes first, I think what we know of... As the Democratic Party is soon to follow, they can't exist without the other. Yeah, You're right.
0: Um, okay, favorite Goldberg. Wait, let me give you the choices: Whoopi Goldberg, mm-hmm. Bill Goldberg, the wrestler, mm-hmm. the late Supreme Court Justice Arthur Goldberg, mm-hmm. Frank Geary, whose real name is Goldberg. <laughs> okay. No, I'm going to count anybody. You know, uh-huh. Rube Goldberg. Uh-huh. Which Goldbergs am I missing? I mean, we're discounting all, all family members. We right. can't Take... play. No, no playing. That's you know? right. Yeah, and the favorite Goldbergs are my kids.
1: There was actually, I, I was told by somebody once that, there, that the. Jeff Goldblum does not count, even though people always
0: assume. Like, people actually tweet at me, like, you're such a great actor, why are you such an idiot? <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, you're avoiding the question. Yeah, I, 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 I don't want to find out that there was some terrible backstory to Rube Goldberg. But I would go with Rube Goldberg, you know.
0: Actually, at this moment in politics, Rube Goldberg seems like an awfully good choice. I'm going to go with Bill Goldberg, the professional wrestler, uh-huh. because he just evinces uh, strength. That's true. Um, and um, when I was out in the Middle East reporting, uh-huh. and this was in, in in his heyday, people like in Hezbollah would say, oh, Goldberg, yeah, like yeah. the wrestler.
1: No, I And know. I would
0: say, my brother. In <laughs> fact... My brother and I would get through checkpoints yeah. on the back of Bill Goldberg, the professional wrestler. Yeah. I owe him
1: the <laughs> Bill Goldberg thing is um, is true, I mean, I don't have a cool Hezbollah story to back it up, but you can
0: make one up. For it the was of this podcast. We're it not fact checking it.
1: Kind of amazing when he got popular. How all of a sudden I would meet people where you had to give your name for whatever, for like a reservation restaurant. Right. All of them thought Goldberg was a cool name rather than, like, a dentist's name, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, the funny thing is that this is why I love America. One of, the reason, one of the many reasons
0: I love America is that there was a period when Bill Goldberg was the top professional wrestler right. where you would have stadiums. You'd have these, these, you know, the huge coliseums where, where before Goldberg came out, 16,000. Young white males yeah. were cheering, Goldberg, Goldberg. Goldberg. Yeah. And it was like, it was like Nuremberg, but the opposite. Yeah, yeah no,
1: that's true. That's it great. was like,
0: they were like, <laughs> when is that big Jew coming out? Because I love him. And I was like, this is an amazing country.
1: And I, I should point out just to make you sad that most of the people who were chanting Goldberg, Goldberg, Goldberg at the wrestling match voted for Trump.
0: Jonah Goldberg, thank you very much for joining the Atlantic interview. I appreciate it very much.
1: I'm delighted to be here. Thank you.
0: The Atlantic Interview is produced by Diana Douglas and Kevin Townsend with production help from Kim Lau. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and rate us. If you don't like this, thank you for listening anyway, and I also wonder why you listen to the whole thing if you don't like it. But anyway, question for another podcast. I'm Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, and we'll be back next week.